invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. We'll begin reading in verse 19, Hebrews chapter 10. You don't have to raise your hand for this. This is one of those questions I want you to think about, though. Do you ever have times where you just feel like giving up? You just kind of feel like maybe letting go. The writer who's written this letter to the Hebrews is writing to a group of people. Primarily, these were, were former Jews, but fell into really two camps. Some of them were former Jews who've come to faith in Christ. They are now believers. They're following Christ. They're Christians. Others are former Jews who haven't yet left, truly left Judaism. They're continuing to look back. And they're facing persecution. They're facing troubles. They're facing testing times. And I think at times both of those camps at times could think, do I, do I keep holding on? So if you've ever felt that way, you don't want to acknowledge it, you don't want to admit it to anybody, but it's probably even part of the life for a Christian when tough times come, what do you do? Well, today's real practical. Just six verses from Hebrews chapter 10. Let me read all six of them and let's dive in. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope Without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. He gives us two senses. He says, because this is true, then you need to do these three things. And you're going to see these three things with there, it's one word, but in our translations, it's let us do these things. So let's look at the sense part of it first. This is the foundation for living the Christian life, foundational stuff. Sense, we have confidence to enter the holy place. He, he's writing here to a group of people. Some have come to faith in Christ. Others, he's encouraging them to faith in Christ, but he's meeting them where they come from. They've come out of the system of Judaism. They knew the Old Testament. They grew up with the sacrificial system. They grew up with things like Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, once a year. But they also grew up with daily sacrifices in the temple. And so when he says, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, you've got to stop a minute and think, whoa, wait a minute. Did any of the people that he's writing to ever have that before Christ? The answer is no. You didn't walk into the presence of God really with confidence. In fact, the only person that got to walk into where they believed was the presence of God was the high priest, and that was once a year. Let me describe that for you just a minute. Before the high priest could walk behind the veil into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, which was the tent in the wilderness that they experienced for about 40 years, it was a 15 by 15 by 15 cube it was behind the holy place you you entered the priest could go into the holy place and that's where they did stuff daily offering sacrifices incense daily and only the priest could go in there but the holy place the holy of holies you only went once a year and that was the high priest 
he wore bells on his robe. Why? So that people outside could hear him back there doing his duties. And if the bells quit ringing, it's because he had died. Had that ever happened before? Yes. There have been times that the priest or other in the priestly family went back into the Holy of Holies unauthorized. They weren't there because God invited them, and they didn't go by the prescription of how God had said, here's how you enter. And they were burned up. So when, when a Jew hears, you've got, you can come now with confidence into the holy place, they've got to think, whoa, we've never experienced that before in our lives. How can you come with confidence into a place that we had always thought was a place you enter with fear and trepidation, and really only one guy got to do that once a year? So now he's saying, Christians, come into the presence of God and you do it with confidence. The word confidence means full assurance. I remember my dad at times, if, if I was ever going someplace I wasn't supposed to, dad said, just walk in like you own the place. Y'all ever heard that before? You know, you kind of, you know, if you walk into some places like you don't have a ticket or maybe it's, you know, you're at a NASCAR race and you're not really supposed to be in the pits. <laughs> and so you just act like you're supposed to be there. And, and a lot of times, as long as you act right, people won't say anything to you. You kind of get away with it. Well. People, in, people that grew up in the Old Testament days and now in the New Testament, but they know the Old Testament, they, they would never think of walking confidently into the holy place. And yet that's what the writer of Hebrews is offering now. God says come with confidence. But here's the question. What's the confidence in? If you think somehow I can walk into the presence of God because I have had seven straight days of quiet times or I'm at youth camp. And we just had the best worship experience of my life. I can, I can go into the presence of God because I have sung praises. Or I've shared Christ with somebody. Or I've been on the mission field. Or I've been to seminary. Or I've anything that it comes back to what you've done, you have no confidence in that. That's confidence in the flesh. So where's our confidence? Our confidence is in Jesus. The only way that I can approach God, and here's the good news, because of Jesus, I can approach the Father. It's through Jesus Christ. In fact, the way he specifically said it, it is by the blood of Jesus. Now, just so you get what he's talking about, in the Old Testament, how did the priest enter? The priest had to take a special bath. He had to put on special clothes, and then he would sacrifice an animal. And he would take the blood of that animal and sprinkle it. He would walk, do some things outside the veil. He'd walk behind the veil and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And so you entered into the presence of God by the blood in the Old Testament of animals. We enter into the presence of God now because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Folks, it's not us. I don't have confidence in myself, my ability, or anything. It is only through the blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, he goes on to say, by a new and living way. The word new here is interesting. The word new, there's words translated new throughout the, throughout the New Testament. This word only occurs one time, and it's right here. And it literally means freshly slain. And I thought about that. We come by the blood of Christ. He's a new and living way. He truly is a freshly slain living way. You see the paradox of that? Now, the Old Testament sacrifice, you didn't go back to an animal you killed yesterday and offer that again because it wasn't freshly slain. But Jesus is a sacrifice that remains and continues. Why? Because it's constantly 
fresh. For the person who's never trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior, the sacrifice is fresh today. And it has results that continue to live. New and living way. Jesus Christ died on the cross, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. And he, he now lives. Where is he? He's seated at the right hand of the Father, constantly advocating for us in heaven. And he inaugurated this way through the veil. Again, you've got to get the Old Testament sense of this veil. Some commentators tell us it was like a four-inch thick tapestry that if you had put a horse, a wild horse, on each corner, they could not have possibly pulled it apart. And what happened when Jesus died on the cross? The veil was torn from top to bottom. And so in a physical sense, the temple veil was torn. But in a spiritual sense, better veil than that was torn. The flesh of Christ was torn, and that's now how we enter. Old Testament, high priest entered through the veil. New Testament, you and I enter through the veil, but it's not a four-inch piece of tapestry anymore. It's the flesh, the body of Christ. So since we have this confidence to enter, and then since we have a great priest over the house of God, the Old Testament, they knew the priest's name. Even in the first century, they would have known who the high priest was. They would have known who their other priests were. We have a better priest than that. We have Jesus. So since we have confidence, since we have a great high priest, do these three things. So that's the foundation for living. Now let's look at the practice of living. And I hope this just is really practical. I hope hope if you're here this morning and you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've ever struggled We're just living the Christian life. So what now? And you should have asked that question, whether you verbalized it that way or not. Okay, I've prayed to receive Christ. What now? My own experience is this. I asked Jesus into my life when I was 12 years old. It was real. But nobody for about three years came and told me anything to do next. Nobody mentioned quiet times. Nobody mentioned personal Bible study, prayer, any of that for about three years. I didn't get it. I'm not blaming anybody else for it. I was a little slow. All right. So if you've ever struggled with what now, I'm going to give you three lettuces this morning. The first one, let us draw near. Again, an invitation that would have been foreign. How close could the average person get to the presence of God in the Old Testament? God's presence was represented in that holy place, in the Holy of Holies. But none of us could go there. In fact, you couldn't even get real close. Unless you're a priest or the high priest who could walk in there once a year. So he's now saying, let us draw near. Let us approach. In fact, the word could even be translated worship. Let us draw near. Let us approach. Let us worship God. How? With a sincere heart. A truthful heart. A genuine heart. A heart that's not pretending. You ever watch people pretend in worship? I was a youth pastor, and this is back. Some of you will appreciate this. Kids are going to go, you've never even heard of this device I'm about to mention. But we used to have to use an overhead projector. Anybody know what that is? <laughs> okay. Overhead projector. You know, somebody that, was, if we were doing worship and we were putting songs up on the screen, somebody had to have this sheet of plastic, and they'd have to put it up there, and they'd have to, they'd have to stay in the moment enough to know when to take that one, I'll put another one up there. And some of the teachers in school would get real slick. They'd put a piece of paper that would block out the light over part of the slide so they'd just reveal a little bit at a time. We had this guy named Ted who was running the overhead projector one night. We were worshiping. 
Ted had never lifted his hands in worship in his life until the newspaper came to do a story on the youth group. And the camera showed up, and here's Ted. Now, I wish that that had been a part of Ted's life up until that point. But, folks, if you do it when the cameras are on, you are pretending. You're not worshiping with a sincere heart. That's not pure. You're faking it. I've seen people do this, too, kind of and they're looking at their watch. <laughs> you're supposed to be focusing on God, and you're thinking, well, let's see, we can get to, I think we can beat the Methodist today. I don't know. To the cafeteria. You better beat the Baptist, for crying out loud. If you go in the cafeteria, because they're going to get all the white meat. (laughs) But we come before him with a sincere heart in the full assurance of faith. Why? Because we've had our hearts sprinkled clean. You and I don't get that, but if we understood the Old Testament, the way you were clean is by having your body sprinkled. Well, it's not just our extremities that have been sprinkled. Our heart's been sprinkled. The change that has happened in us didn't happen from the outside in. It has happened from the inside out. Paul put it this way. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Draw near with confidence. And you've been cleansed from an evil conscience. The word evil literally means hurtful or bad. Why do we struggle with that? It's because we know we've sinned. And in the Old Testament, you were forgiven for, check it out, you were forgiven for unintentional sins. There really wasn't a provision in the law for intentional sin. Now, don't raise your hand, but anybody here that has ever not sinned intentionally, what what I mean by that, you knew it was wrong and you still did it. Okay, I'm going to raise my hand. I don't want you to raise your hand. I'm so glad that the blood of Christ cleanses me from all sin. Not just the ones I didn't know better, but folks, there were times I knew better. So my heart's been cleansed, and I've been cleansed from an evil conscience. What is that? My conscience would have continued to condemn me because I knew it was wrong, and I still did it. But in Christ, he said this a couple of times already in Hebrews. He said, I remember your sin no more. That's really better than him saying, I forget your sin, because God's not forgetful. But he chooses, because he's sovereign, to remember it no more. Well, how do we draw near? Let me, let me just give you a few practical thoughts. How, how do you do that? Well, first of all, before I give you the word, it takes time. And let me tell you, if you're a Christian, one of the greatest schemes of the enemy is another four-letter word. B-U-S-Y. Busy. Why don't people spend more time with God? Because they've allowed other things to become more important. And they got busy. I meant to have a quiet time this morning, but I hit the alarm, snooze three more times, and I'll do it later. What happens to later? It gets away from you. So three things. Just There, there could be more, but I'm just going to give you three. How do you draw near to God? First of all, draw near to God in prayer. Prayer. And don't do all the talking in prayer. I encourage you to have a notebook when you pray. And it used to bother me when I pray that I'd have other thoughts. I, get, I thought they were distractions, and I finally realized maybe God's trying to speak. So sometimes in prayer, just be still and know that he's God, and he may put something on your heart through Scripture you're reading and through your time of prayer. 
If God puts a person on your heart, write their name down. What, what I found out is if I'm really trying to focus on prayer, if I go ahead and write their name down, then I can forget about it, move on, and come back to it later. And maybe God's telling me, you need to talk to that person. You need to call them. You need to email them. You need to ask them how they're doing. You need to pray for them. So prayer. Second way is Bible study. Both personal and corporate. Bible study. Are you studying God's Word? You need to be doing that personally every day. But you also can be a part of small groups, Sunday school, and church. Now, you can check off today, all right? We're studying the Bible today. Check that off. <laughs> Third thing is worship. One of the ways we draw near to God is in worship. But how does God say we worship? We also worship with a pure heart. We don't worship pretending. In fact, when Jesus had the conversation with the woman at the well, she wanted to talk a little bit about worship. He finally looked at her and said, Lady, there's a day coming when you're not going to worship in this mountain or that mountain. Why? Because worship's from the Jews. You can only worship what you know. But folks, the more you know God, the better your worship will be. And why do we need to be told this? Why do we need to be told to draw near to God? Well, you're going to hear this theme in all three of them, but it doesn't come natural. It's supernatural. So the second one is, let us hold fast. Make a fist. Hold fast. Is there anything in your life right now that you'd put in that grip and you'd say, I will never let this go? Girls, if you're dating a guy right now and he's saying, I love you, I will, ne- I will always love you, what, what happens like three months later? And when you break up, you're kind of going, wait a minute, whatever happened to Always. Well, hopefully there will come a day when somebody makes that promise to you. And it's always. You don't let go. Hold fast. This is the evidence we're saved is that we're holding fast. Why do I need to be reminded of that? Because when tough times come, two, two reasons. When tough times come, you're tempted to let go. And the second reason is tough times will come. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Tough times will come. Here's the good news. The world system is shaky. God is constant. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. The promises he made you five years ago are still promises today. What he promised us through his word is still good today. God hadn't set up in heaven going, I need to revise some of that. No. It's his perfect word. So hold fast to the confession of our hope. What are we saying? Hold fast to my confession. I have claimed Christ as my Lord and Savior. That's where my hope is. My hope's not in my effort. My hope is in Christ. So hold fast to the confession of your hope. And how do we do that? Without any wavering. I love that word. It's a picture of this. It's a picture of something standing tall and straight, and no matter how the wind blows against it, no matter how the water crashes, no matter how much life happens, it never falters from true perpendicular without any wavering. I can't come to this passage without remembering an illustration of my son. I'm going to have to tell this one quick. When my son was about three years old, we were at my wife's softball game, and she was playing softball. I have four kids. He was the youngest. And he had gone into the woods. His favorite thing in life was a stick. 
He could make any toy out of a stick. You didn't have to buy him a lot for Christmas. Didn't require batteries and no assembly required. He just liked sticks. My other son liked rocks. In fact, if you ever came to our house, there's going to be a pile of rocks by the front door and a couple of sticks. So he went into the woods. He pulled out a tree. <laughs> and he said, Dad, break this, break this limb off for me. And I'm thinking, I don't have a chainsaw, but I want my son to think I'm a hero, so I'm going to break this thing off. So I'm over here, and I've been working on it, and I'm struggling to break this limb. People in the stands have quit watching the game. They're now watching me. They're like cheering for me. Come on, you can do it. Finally, I hear a snap. I'm pretty sure it was a bone in my leg that broke. But I, I broke this stick off and gave it to him. He, you know, he took it. He was so proud of that stick. He, you know, we get back to the van. He said, Dad, can I take this stick home? I said, you're doggone right you're taking it home. I about kill myself. You're, you're sleeping with that stick tonight. But that was one of the sticks you had to leave outside. He had an inside stick. It was a dowel rod that we'd use for something. It was his inside stick. And he used to love going around like he was the king of something, you know. He had a, he'd wear his blanket over his shoulders like he was somebody and, you know, kind of go up giving. And, and I remember his, kid, his, his brother and sisters, you know, he's kind of waving around. They're kind of like, Dad, take that stick away. I remember walking up to him and said, give me the stick, and here's, here's what I got. Uh-uh. Now, a three-year-old, what is their greatest defense? Their teeth. They will bite you. All right? If you've never been around a three-year-old, if you had not been around a three-year-old lately, we've got some in the nursery. Go try taking stuff away from them. They'll bite you. And that's the look I got. And it's that look that God continues to remind me of. said, Robert, next time Satan comes and says, why don't you just let go? Is he getting that picture? Is he getting the uh-uh? Now, here's the good news. I'm not holding on in my strength alone. The reason I can hold on is why? Because he who promised is faithful. I've made a confession. I've made a proclamation. Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. But he's made his own proclamation. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'm the Father one. Whatever the Father has placed into my hand, nothing can snatch you out. I'm convinced that neither height nor depth nor things present nor things to come or any principality or any other created thing can separate you, separate me from the love of God. So the reason I can hang on is because God's hanging on. It's like this. And his grip's a lot better than mine. Hang on without any wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Camp's Crusade has a tract called The Four Spiritual Laws, and I love one of the graphics, one of the illustrations in that tract. It's a train. It looks like this. It's fact, faith, and feeling. The fact is the engine that drives the train. The faith is the fuel. And the feeling is just along for the ride. Here's the problem. A lot of times we live our life backwards. We base our relationship with God on feeling. I just don't feel it today. I'm not feeling good. I don't know if I'm saying I just don't feel it. Folks, you've got to come back to the facts. What are the facts? If you've confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, believe in your heart that God raised you from the dead, you shall be saved. First John 5 puts it this way. I've written these, things to you, written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you can know that you have eternal life. So when Satan comes with lies, what do we do? We go back to the facts. And we're saved by faith. We place our faith in the facts, not in the feeling. So the faith is what drives your life. What, the facts are what drives your life, what drives the train. The faith is the fuel. And the feelings will follow. Last thing. Last lettuce is this. Let us consider. 
Let us consider one another. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, draw near to God, hold fast, and now think about others. In fact, the word for let us consider literally means give concentrated thought. Concentrated. I remember the old orange juice cans. I heard somebody say one time, you know you're a redneck if you stare at that can because it says concentrate. Well, now orange juice, if you buy it in the store, a lot of it says not from concentrate. Okay? We need to be concentrating. And who do we concentrate on? One of the things we do is concentrate on each other. Let us consider other people, how we may stimulate them on to love and good deeds. The word can also be translated spur them on. So one of my roles in the church is to think about you. How can I spur you on? Now, I'm not talking about putting on metal objects on my foot and kicking you. There's times pastors want to do that. There's even times pastors, I've had this thought, I wish we could like put like a mild electric charge in the pews. So if I see somebody's not quite getting out, I just hit a button and, you know, just at least they wake up, you know. I'm just kidding. But how can we spur one another on to love, love and good deeds? To incite to good. Well, let me give you four ways to spur. One is prayer. Pray for the church. Pray for your leaders in the church. Pray for people in the church. Pray for salvations. I love some churches I've been in. If I get there early, if I'm preaching, I've seen some people will actually walk down every row, whether it's chairs or pews. And I asked them one time, what are you doing? They said, I'm praying over every seat because I'm praying for everybody that's going to sit here. They, they pray over the doors. People are going to walk through these doors. So I'm praying for people. If they don't know Jesus, I'm praying today they come to faith in Christ. For others, I'm praying today they'd be encouraged, they'd be stre- stretched and strengthened in their walk. So I'm praying. Second is example. A lot of things in life are better caught than taught. And so use your example to show Jesus to people. Your life has to back up what you're saying. Because trust me, if all they hear is you talk, and then they watch your walk, and it doesn't match, which one are they going to believe? They're going to believe what they see. Use God's Word. Allow God's Word just to flow through you. When somebody comes to you for advice, one of the best things you can do is point them to Scripture. Use God's Word. And then use encouragement. One of the, one of the blessings of the church today is you can encourage people by a text, by an email, by a Facebook message. I mean, you fill in the blanks. used to be you have to write them a letter and it would take them three days. Now they can get it like that. Don't do it right now. No texting during the message. You don't even have to be tweeting anything I've said. Wait till afterwards. But encourage them to two things, love and good deeds. Love is agape, unconditional love. Why do I need help loving people? Because it doesn't come natural. You know what comes natural? Treating people the way they treat you. Some people are hard to love. You know anybody like that? Don't raise your hand and don't point. But you know what? The truth is some people in the church are hard to love. Some of the most miserable people I know go to church. And it's almost like their goal in life is, you know what, I'm miserable, and I want to make sure everybody else is miserable too. It shouldn't be that way, but it is sometimes in the church. So I need help loving people. And this has been my prayer. God, help me to see people the way you do. Because if I see them the way I do through my lenses, a lot of times it's hard to love. 
Of course, then God reminds me, you ain't no prize either. (laughs) You know, every now and then we just need to be remembered, hey, God loved you. So you need to love others. And then good deeds. Why do I need help doing good deeds? Why do I need to be reminded to do the right thing? Because it doesn't come natural. There's a philosophy in secular humanism, and I've heard it. It's this. If you just leave children alone, they have a tendency to do good. And my question for them is, have you ever been around children? Have you ever had children? I have four of them. We did not have to teach our children to do the wrong thing. I didn't have to teach my sons, you know, to steal their sister's toys or pull them by the hair or didn't have to teach the daughters, you know, to hit them or whatever. We didn't have to teach them that. They get it after their mother. No. Trust me. They didn't get it from her. They got it because it's the natural thing to do. And, folks, if we do what comes natural, it ain't going to be supernatural. So the writer of Hebrews is reminding them, consider other people and spur them on. Help them on in the Christian life to love and good deeds. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some. Why does he add that right after he said consider other people? Well, for one thing, you can't consider other people if you're not around other people. And the way you're going to help the body of Christ is you've got to spend time with the body of Christ. One of the things I did this week is you just Google sometimes, why don't people go to church anymore? I'm not talking about why they didn't go in the first place. I'm talking about why have some people quit going to church? There's a list of why people don't go to church. I'm going to just give you a few. In fact, really three. One is laziness. What do I mean by that? Some people just rather sleep in. It's worth getting up for, but folks, go to night church if that's the best you can do. Number two is other pursuits. What happens is you used to go to church. Life gets going good. God's blessed you. And... You buy a mountain house, you buy a beach house, you buy a boat. Are those things wrong? No. But if they come between you and God, they're deadly. So be careful with other pursuits. You know what? They make tea times in Myrtle Beach during church. Did y'all know that? There are people playing golf right now. And here's the funny thing. Some of them will say, well, I can worship God on the golf course. Okay, yeah, you can. I've seen the way some of you play. I don't think you're worshiping God. All right? But here's the point. I'm not talking about whether it's got to be at 11 o'clock or 10 o'clock or 9.30 or 8.30. If you're forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, you're not going to be able to encourage one another. Third reason, this one's broad, you're mad at somebody. You got ticked off. You're either mad at something or someone in the church, so you quit going. This is my favorite. They're hypocrites at the church. No, there was until you quit coming. No. Yeah, there's hypocrites at the church. What better place for them? We're all hypocritical at times. There's hypocrites at the grocery store, and I still eat. So don't give me that excuse. But some people got mad at the music. They got mad at the temperature. They got mad at the preacher. They got mad at some decision that was made. They got mad that their needs weren't met. That's one... Why aren't you going to that church anymore? Well, my needs weren't met. It's 
kind of like the guy that was stranded on a desert island. Been there for like five years. Some rescuers finally come, and he's showing them around the island. He said, well, that's my hut that I live in. They say, what's that building over there with the cross? He said, well, that's, that's where I go to church. They said, what's the other building with the cross? He said, that's where I used to go. I mean, it's human nature. Even if we were on desert island, some of us would get, get mad at that church and leave. Go to another one. So, folks, you need to be among a body of believers where you can worship God, where you can serve God. It's not always about are your needs being met. How about are you meeting anybody else's needs? And you cannot give concentrated thought. You can't be Jesus with skin on to people you're never around. But I'll give a fourth one. I think in this case of this church, some of it was persecution. They were facing persecution. And, folks, that's beginning in America. It's already happening around the world. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, in the face of whatever, don't stop meeting together. You need one another, and one another needs you. In fact, encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. What's he talking about, folks? Jesus is coming back. In these people's minds, or what's reality is about to happen, about five years after this letter is written, Jerusalem is going to be overrun. The temple is going to be destroyed. The sacrificial system will have to cease. And all he's saying is, listen, as you see that day coming, whether it's five years from now or 105 years from now, encourage one another. Let's pray together. Bottom line is this, folks. Live like Jesus. If you know him, act like him. Because he's coming again. Father, thank you for the practice of living in your presence. Thank you for the invitation several times in Hebrews that we can come into the presence of Almighty God. And Lord, we know that we're there now. You've told us in your word where two or three are gathered in your name. There you are in their midst. We don't have to go to a 15 by 15 cube any longer. You're not dwelling in a building made by us. God, thank you for inviting us to know you. And God, help us as believers. God, help us tomorrow and the next day and a month from now to draw near to you, to hold fast without any wavering, and to consider others. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Would you apply it to our hearts? God, whether it be a group that's here with a youth group or, Lord, a visitor on vacation, take the truth of your word and apply it to our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.